the program committee was very keen to have a session titled The Role of an Actuary as a Chief Financial Officer or a Chief Risk Officer. The problem was, where do you find somebody to talk to this? And it turns out, after some search, that we actually is a perfect candidate so because somebody has done precisely this. Andrew Burrow is currently the Chief Financial Officer of Guardian Financial Services Limited. Now, Guardian Financial well, Guardian Insurance Company was founded in 1821. Loads and loads of history there. Um, quite interestingly enough, try to compare that to the history of, of, of ASA. Uh, 1921 was the first year that a South African qualified as an actuary. Martinez, I forget Martinez's surname now. So there's a, we're at least a century behind. ASA was a, a, another good 25 plus years in the making. Obviously, today, Guardian is a different world. The garden for which Andrew works than the one that was started in, in 1821. It's today owned under, uh, under private equity ownership. But certainly, uh, in the role of uh, a CFO that Andrew plays there, I think, you know, very, very interesting and very unique perspective from that of an actuary. Andrew's had a very interesting career with um, some of the major South African employers in his past being Capital Alliance, Investec, and then Old Mutual Group, where he was both Chief Risk Officer and Chief Actuary. Um, he qualified in 1994, and I'm glad to say that he is a real actuary, uh, unlike certain previous speakers today. Andrew, welcome. Good to have you here. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Uh, when, uh, when Leonard got hold of me and asked me if I'd want to talk here today, I said, well, I'm happy to talk, but I'm not really sure that I've got a message that's going to be interesting for people in the audience. So uh, if it isn't, at least you get some CPD. Uh, if it is and you want to ask some questions, you're most welcome. Uh, you very kindly started with some of my background, but uh, I'm like many people in the room, I suspect, studied at uh, UCT, did my business science degree. Uh, qualified as an FFA. I don't think there was an FASA at the time. I'm, uh, it wasn't a separate uh, a designation, but of course, so you became an, a FASA if you were an FFA. And uh, also joined the Society of Actuaries in the US. Uh, I did a CIRA through them in 2009 uh, to get some more, I guess, risk uh, information. And then I also did a course with Deloitte in 2010, uh, which they run in London on the next generation CFO. And I've used a couple of their slides today, and I hope they'll forgive me for that, but I think they're particularly interesting slides. Um, I did a course in INSEAD in uh, international business, and I thought that had some bearing as well on what I'll talk about today, so I uh, also need to credit them. So some of the roles that I've undertaken, and those have given me some background in, in what I'm going to talk about today, and that's why I'm going to mention them. Uh, actually, probably the first 10 years of my career I spent with Metropolitan. And I uh, need to thank my first boss who's sitting in the audience here, Nigel Shannon, who uh, taught me, I think, more than, he'd, more than I would ever have expected. And he's probably forgotten more about actuarial science than I'll ever know. But uh, that was a really good training and a really good grounding. Uh, spent some time with Nigel in the valuations area. Uh, went on to be involved with uh, Metropolitan Health, where Rian van Dijk is also in the back row, uh, had managed to get the board to buy into the strategy. And uh, then I took on the role of life product development, uh, marketing support, and actually they even asked me to do corporate advertising, which was uh, a fairly unusual combination of activities for an actuary to be doing. I felt it was time to move on from Cape Town, though, so I did something which I guess most people here would consider heretical, and I moved up to Johannesburg and uh, took a role there. You can see from my past experience that I was perfectly unqualified to be a CFO, 
And actually, it was quite an interesting conversation. I spoke to Ian Kirk of Capital Alliance, uh, and I said to him, look, Ian, I've decided I want to move on into a new role. Um, and he said, well, we don't need an actuary because we've got one. We, only, we don't want more than one because then there are too many opinions. Uh, we don't need somebody to do marketing because we don't do that. Uh, but the CFO has just gone to Australia. And uh, do you think you could take a crack at that? And so we uh, agreed that I'd come up and try the role. And if I was rubbish, he could tell me after six months to go. And um, so fortunately, I managed to stay for just on you know, five or six years. And so presumably, I was, I was OK. We did quite a number of transactions in that time. And some of the names, which have now passed into the annals of history, I guess, are names like Norwich and uh, Fedshire where Investec had acquired the Fedshire group and then realized that they didn't really know how to get their hands around insurance business. And uh, so we did that transaction where we took all the individual life business out from them and grew our balance sheet about sixfold in basically one transaction, which was quite a stretch for us, but we like to believe that we managed to do it relatively well. And a lot of what we learned at that time in Capital Alliance was actually about getting the core of the actuarial disciplines right in the company, uh, particularly around having good data and being able to do good asset liability management. And I'll touch on that again later. And hopefully that's an area of interest for many of you in the room today. So Capital Alliance was bought by Liberty and uh, I, I left and uh, took on an interesting role after a couple of months with Investec as the CFO and CEO of the uh, securities business. And that was a completely uh, different role to anything I'd ever done before. It was very much uh, being in the markets, uh, dealing with brokers, uh, running some uh, prop books as well, having some responsibility for derivative trades, etc. And it was a fascinating exposure to a side of the markets that I hadn't seen before. Because prior to that, in the Capital Alliance days, we'd only ever dealt with uh, Investec as our asset manager. We had uh, Investec Asset Management doing all, all the work for us. And effectively, we had one of their guys operating as our CIO. And uh, I was his client, and we used to engage on a daily basis. But I hadn't really seen things from his side of the fence. Of course, in the stockbroking business, you don't see things quite from an from a asset manager's point of view. You're kind of more trying to sell to asset managers. But it was a fascinating exposure. I thought I'd left insurance. And then Paul Hanratty, who uh, you'll know is a very persuasive guy, contacted me and asked me to come to Mutual to work with them and do some work on risk and capital. And we did some very, very interesting work there with some of the very, very good actuaries uh, at Mutual. And um, within a few months, working with Gary Pulser, we did some work which showed that actually for Mutual, uh, the optimal strategy for the assets backing the car were to be completely out of equities and bonds and, and primarily in cash, uh, which was completely counter to what the, uh, the group had thought that we should be doing with the shareholder capital. Anyway, Paul and I continued and we prevailed and eventually uh, implemented the strategy very fortuitously in about uh, November 2007, which meant that OMSA effectively had a cash balance sheet uh, as the worst of the financial crisis was starting to hit uh, that group a couple of months later. So the timing was lucky. Uh, the thinking was actually based on actuarial thinking and uh, we, we thought a lot about risk and capital and return uh, at the time that we, we got to that optimal allocation. So it was a very interesting time with, with, with Old Mutual in South Africa. And uh, as a consequence of that, I ended up uh, being asked to go to London to 
be the group chief actuary uh, because the CFO at the time was not an actuary and was finding it quite hard to actually engage with the market on all these very complicated terms. He was an extremely good CFO, uh, but he'd come from a company called Hansen. And uh, he used to tell me that every time he saw a Hansen truck uh, driving down the streets of London, and there were loads of them, uh, he knew that there was 80 pence of profit going past him. And he just didn't know what was going on day to day in the insurance books because it was such a different kind of company. So I moved to, to London, uh, got there. My timing was impeccable because uh, I arrived in July. Uh, we had to start working that week on the interims. And we had this company in Bermuda, and we just couldn't, I just couldn't really work out what was going on with the numbers. Uh, having spent some time in Investec, kind of being on the other side of derivatives and, and, and those kinds of trades and how they're priced, it seemed to me like we were giving away five-pound notes for, uh, for four pounds, and that, that never works. And so as we started digging and digging more to a greater extent, suddenly it seemed like there was a bit of a problem. And uh, you know, I think my first day of work pretty much became a week long, uh, just literally trying to work some all-nighters with the team, trying to really get under the hood of that. And it was a fascinating time. I must say the experience was wonderful. Um, they asked me to step up to be the group CRO after that. And uh, we had a very interesting time through the crisis because we had some other assets as well elsewhere in the world which uh, weren't as well balanced and well managed as the company in South Africa. So uh, really fascinating experience. I think in the three years that I did that job, I felt like I aged about 20. Um, and I'm happy to take any questions on that later, but uh, being at the ringside of seeing a global financial group go through the crisis at a time when many organizations um, that were global insurers were having similar issues was actually quite fascinating. And, and actually, Mutual's issues with the Bermuda business were fairly well publicized, but companies like uh, AXA and ING had even bigger problems, but because they had a much bigger balance sheet, they were able to mask those. And uh, so we took a bit of pain in, 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 in the press. Uh, they didn't. Uh, and actually, if, you, if you've been following these things, you'll know that ING has probably strengthened reserves by a couple of billion dollars since then, uh, cumulatively over a period of four or five years, uh, but kind of undercover, uh, because it was never really big enough for people to notice. So at the end of it, 2011, I, uh, I moved to Guardian. Guardian is a very old company, as you heard. I think it, it may be the second oldest insurance company in the world, second to Equitable Life. It had a very proud history. Uh, by 1999, it was a composite insurer, one of the big composites in the UK. It was on the FTSE 100, and AXA bought it, uh, kept the general insurance business, and sold off the life company to Aegon. Uh, Aegon took the life company and did nothing with it, which was marvelous because in about 2011, when they had to pay back some money to the Dutch government, they decided that uh, they could sell this business because it wouldn't take a lot of unpicking from the rest of their group. And a big European private equity house called Sinven won the auction, and I joined as a CFO. So we've had quite an interesting time so far in Guardian. Uh, we started off with a certain EV in, in gross terms, and we've now grown it roughly sixfold in the last two and a half years. And uh, what I know about myself by nature is I enjoy being part of building something. I'm not a great maintainer. And so uh, it, it really is a very interesting thing uh, for us to be doing right now. And uh, those of you that worked with me at Mutual will know that in the Mutual role, we spent a lot of time on what we called uh, on our Solvency II equivalent program. And that was all about managing risk and capital to great value. 
And actually, that's what we've been doing in, in Guardian. And it's actually fascinating to see how you can actually put all of these concepts into, into work and actually create value. So, so far, I've done three CFO roles and two, CR, uh, two, and, and two CRO roles. And so uh, the, the rest of the slides from here on out are a combination of uh, personal views and, and experiences uh, that I've had. And uh, please, you know, you're welcome to ask questions if you have any or if you disagree. So just to start off with, I mean, what does being an actuary bring to these roles? Um, I had a few ideas on that and I thought I'd share them with you because I think there are some core actuarial disciplines. The first thing I think is the control cycle. Uh, which to my mind is a very powerful way of thinking about the world and lots of people outside of our community Probably do it implicitly, but nobody talks explicitly about a control cycle Of course you, you first start something you approve it you then implement it you monitor it and you report on it and then you decide what needs to be changed and Then you approve the changes and around you go again might seem very simple but when I talk to people that have worked in risk or in finance in other fields, and I mention this idea to them, they think it's quite revo revolutionary. So the second thing that I think we have as an actuarial discipline which helps us in these kinds of roles is this concept of how you manage to balance risk. So taking risk with putting capital at risk, how you balance the uh, interaction between those two elements. If you've got too little capital for the risk you're taking, well, you better get some risk out or you better get some more capital. It's as simple as that. And how do you manage this so that you can ultimately create value? Because if you don't create value, you're not gonna get more capital. Uh, and also, if you don't create value, well, the people that you report to are gonna tell you that what's the point of taking this risk anyway? And so I think it's a very powerful part of the actuarial training which uh, benefits one in these roles. Data, I remember back in my, my, my years in actuarial valuations, can't do anything without data. Need to have good data, so it needs to be credible, high quality. Of course, often we know we have to use approximations and assumptions, and that's of course what actuaries are always uh, kind of, um, you know, jokes are told about that. But uh, we can't explain the world exactly, so we have to do it approximately, and we have to understand the limitations of those approximations. Again, a lot of people make wild guesses and they think, well, actually, you know, it's going to be like that because I say it's like that. But what we have um, as actuaries, I think, is a bit more of a rigorous approach. We try and assess how credible the data is, uh, and we sometimes do that implicitly or explicitly. We put some risk factors on if we're not that confident in our numbers, so that ultimately we can have some level of uh, comfort with where we get to. A couple of years back, probably about 10 years back when this book was published, I thought it was excellent. It was something which is probably quite trivial related, compared to the data that you use in your, in your daily lives. But the triumph of the optimist to me was a real um, kind of marker of excellent data. I think it's got 36 markets in there going back 100 years. And uh, that was a hell of a good book when we were having all our issues in mutual because I could actually argue with people who believe that you could always earn an equity risk premium by proving that there are times when you don't. Okay, so when you have a product that's designed on the fact that you assume to always earn an equity risk premium and you don't, Normally, that's when you end up having to shovel a lot of capital into the reserves. And uh, just having some good data, you know, what data are you using to price a product? Is it the last 10 years worth of bull market data? You know, is it data that goes further back that takes all kinds of markets into account? Uh, what kind of uh, secular underlying trends were, were there in the data that need to be taken out? Those kinds of issues are, are issues that, that need to concern you if you're a CFO or CRO. 
Peter Bernstein wrote a great book called Against the Gods, The Remarkable Story of Risk. I'm sure many of you have read it. But the one piece that really stuck in my mind around data was uh, where he speaks about being at a conference and a friend, of him told, a friend of his told him, you know, the information you have is not the information you want. The information you want is not the information you need. The information you need is not the information you can get. And the information that you can get or obtain costs more than you want to pay. Okay, so that's one of the challenges that we've got with data, and it's worth remembering it. But uh, I think part of the actuarial discipline is to do things on a data-driven basis. I think another big part of the actuarial discipline is to get this idea of balance right. So, um, you know, both as a CFO and as a CRO, you've got to think about creating value and uh, where the returns come from and how much risk you want to take. Now, quite often, if you are ignorant to risk, you're going to be destroying value and you're going to be getting low returns because you don't even know about the risks that are out there. You know, you're just kind of blindly hoping it's going to be okay. Equally, when you decide that you become so obsessed with risk, you put the brakes on, you equally are going to make, be making low returns because you're just controlling everything, you're over-controlling, you're trying to minimize risk. Well, then there's no return either. So I think one of the things that an actuary can bring to a CFO or CRO role is this concept of how you trade off risk and return and ultimately get to a point where you're managing your risks and to try and get you into the high return space. So moving out of those two corners, which aren't very good corners to be in, and into the corner where you're actually adding value through taking risk. And I think that's inherently in a lot of what we've learned in the past in our training. Of course, the other thing is that every single piece of data out there can't be taken as being an absolute. You know, a piece of data is really just something on a distribution. And you, you need to sometimes get a sense of what the underlying distribution for that piece of data is. You know, you're making an assumption, actually, is this something where the distribution is fundamentally a very skewed distribution with a fat tail? Is it something that could be normally distributed? It's hard to put too much science in it, but to have a bit of a gut feel about how the data might pan out and how this particular assumption that you're using uh, could influence your results is important. You know, I mean, is it a log normal, which has got a bit of a fatter tail? Is it the good old normal distribution? Is it something like a gamma distribution, which can have quite fat tails? Is it a beta, where there's some combinations of beta distributions where actually the t you know, all the fatness is in the tails? Or is it something, something else? Who knows? Uh, sometimes it can be difficult to actually be completely scientific. But having a sense of what it would mean to use a different assumption and what the result would be that you get out of that is quite key. We're using this kind of thinking at the moment when we do our risk and capital modeling, uh, looking at different um, outcomes, different scenarios using stochastic models. I know these are words that you, you use all the time, uh, but I think they are very meaningful and they are something that live within the actuarial tool set. Of course, finally, we build models for everything. And uh, when I was a young actuary, I thought that my model would always be precise, and you know, because the model said that was the result, that had to be the result. Um, of course, that's never true. All models are wrong. Uh, and it's really important to know what the wrongness of the model is. So, you know, when, the, when, when you hit the model error, is it going to be catastrophic to your business because you've underpriced a serious amount of guarantees? Or is it something which actually um, is not particularly material? Of course, if you build a business model where you assume uh, a certain distribution and you get certain outcomes that are catastrophic, that's not a sustainable business. And that, of course, then is something which should exercise a CRO or a CFO. So 
I thought I'd share with you some of the information from Deloitte because let's talk about what a CFO is supposed to do. Traditionally, there are four roles for a CFO. The first role is to be the steward of the company's assets, the other control challenges. Then you've got kind of running the function as such. You've got executing finance so that it becomes meaningful for the business. And then you've got the role of being a strategic partner to the business and actually taking the business forward. So these are the typical four faces. And if you go on a Deloitte course for CFOs and you've got guys from all industries, people who run amusement parks, people who, run, uh, who sell flour, people who sell bricks, aircraft spares, and actuaries sitting in the room, this is what they tell you. And it's, it's, it's very true. It's very interesting information. But actually, I would argue that a lot of the stuff is very generic. So on the steward side, where you're looking at control, those are basics. You've got to get those right as a CFO. On the operator side, where you look at governance and IFRS compliance, and you know, quite frankly, I've never seen anything more bewildering than IFRS. Often, many of my accounting colleagues can't even explain why an accounting standard says what it says. Um, so I don't think those are things that are really particularly special areas for actuaries to, to shine on. But when you start getting to things like being a catalyst in the business, which is around financial leadership, which is around explaining your business, which is around risk management, those are starting to become areas where actually actuaries can play uh, quite a role. Also on the strategist side, strategic planning. I mean, that's a lot of what we do in, in our world. Budgeting and forecasting, you know, all this thing, thinking about models and data, et cetera, distributions. And that becomes quite important, and you can have some real arguments with people who don't think about the world in that way because they feel, you know, the budget is the budget that has to be met. If you say, well, hang on, this is a distribution and blah, 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 it can be quite an interesting conversation. Um, so I would say that of the things that CFOs typically do, half of the roles are things that you need to be able to do, but actually actuaries don't have much of a special skill. But what's most interesting for actuaries is to be in the engine room of an insurance business where you're actually managing actuarial thinking and investments and really bringing those together because that's where you can create a very special business. And I think for that reason, you know, we're very fortunate when uh, one works as a CFO in an insurance company because that definitely is something where an actuary can add value. And uh, bringing that thinking and all the points that I spoke about earlier to bear to create value is actually a very fulfilling and satisfying task. So I think ultimately insurance CFOs have a lot more interesting roles than others because we actually get to work right in the engine room of, of the businesses that we work in. Of course, just a cautionary tale, if you're an actuary and you're a CFO, you've got to be very careful that you do recognize that there are actuarial matters and there are finance matters. Um, and I think clear separation is always important. It can become quite... Uh, tempting sometimes if the actuaries report to you and you're not getting the answer you want to tell them to get you the answer that you want. But it's actually more important that they get that separation and freedom to deliver what they need to deliver in terms of what they feel comfortable with. Uh, because quite typically the CFO has got a lot of stakeholders, primarily shareholders and external stakeholders, whereas the statutory actuary's main stakeholder is to the customers. And it's actually very healthy having that tension but equally, it's very healthy having your statutory actuary and knowing that he's worrying about the customer issues, listening to him when he's worrying about those. Because if you don't get that separation of duties right, you end up with some bad answers. And that's something that I certainly saw in some of the acquisitions we did way back in the Capital Alliance days. Because at that stage, we couldn't really afford to buy companies that were 
showroom condition. We only bought them when they needed a bit of panel beating. And typically the reason they needed panel beating is because they had, something had gone wrong on the actuarial side. I'm not trying to say that, by the way, there were bad actuaries in those companies. What I am trying to say is that quite often the actuaries weren't able to operate in the way that they knew they should be operating and constraints had been placed on them. So just talking about CROs for a minute, I mean, I've got some slides here from the UK, uh, so if you'll forgive me for that, but the key issue is that business failures, customer detriment, all these things that you've seen that have been going wrong, have moving the, the debate from, well, risk management's very hard, how do we do it, to how do we actually prove and quantify how we're managing our risks. Just a couple of uh, points here. Royal Sun Alliance in the UK recently had some uh, very big losses. You know, were those just bad luck or were they bad management? Did they have an ineffective risk management environment? PPI, 20 billion pounds. You know, it's, I think it's one of the reasons why the UK hasn't had a worse, worse recession, because the man in the street can put in a claim, you know, even if you never had PPI, it's a terrible fraud scandal that's going on, but the banks are paying, because unfortunately for a small amount of money, they can't afford to do all the underwriting that needs to be done on those redress claims. The regulators are being quite clear, saying that where they think companies have got a bad risk uh, culture, they're just going to make you carry more capital. And of course, going back to that risk and capital triangle, if you're carrying capital you don't need, you are not creating the value that you should be creating. So it's something that CROs or companies need to think about. We've now got the new LIBOR scandal uh, unfolding in the UK. I mean, every week there's another scandal. It's uh, you know, quite, a, quite an interesting environment to work in. And of course, you know, risk culture is something which is more than just how do people make decisions, it's how they get paid, and all these other ele elements that go around it. So I thought it would be helpful to run through quickly some of the key objectives of a CFO CRO role and talk a bit about uh, how being an actuary could actually help with, with, with such a role. There's a leadership and vision and direction piece that you've got to give. There's a piece about guiding boards and exco's and things like how do you set risk appetites. And that's actually something which, which fits quite well with that actuarial skill set. There's uh, reviewing and approving things and making sure they're consistent and models so that can fit in the actuarial skill set quite well too. There's challenging and testing, which is something that typically could fit well in that skill set. There's analyzing, assessing key accumulations of risk. I mean, that is in the heart of what our skill set should be. Reviewing and reporting things to the board. We don't really get trained that much in that field, but it's a key part of the role. Challenging business decisions very much something that could fit in our skill set. And then of course providing support and assistance, and this isn't something that naturally is in our skill set, but uh, you know, for, in some cases it might be. And the key things that you've got to do in a CRO role to be successful, I think, are to start off to be an advisor. And a big piece around that is how you design risk limits and frameworks so that they can be meaningful. They're not just ticking a box, but they're something that people can use to manage the business day to day. Being an ambassador around effective relationships, um, personally I found that quite hard when I was in the role because it wasn't really part of my skill set. I often found it easier to tell people what to do than to try and uh, convince and influence them. But that's certainly something which, uh, which one needs to be able to do. Being an enabler, uh, that you don't necessarily need to be an actuary to do, but it's an important part of the job. And then finally being an enforcer. And I guess, you know, if you've worked in some actuarial disciplines, you, you've been used to laying down the law at some stage. Um, 
Some CROs like to start at the enforcer side and that never really works well. Uh, always better to first win people over if you can. So I think some of the challenges that we've got as actuaries are that when we take on these roles, we've got a fantastic skill set that we've been imbued with and sheep dipped with uh, both at university and also after that working in various roles. But actually, many of these kind of CRO, C, CFO, C-function type roles, C-suite roles, are roles where you not only need to get there by having technical skills, but once you're there, technical skills aren't the only thing that will make you successful. And actually, as roles become more senior, the kind of technical stuff matters less. In fact, if it does matter, it's taken as a given. And uh, sometimes it just needs to become a background uh, issue so you can ask the right questions. And so we start getting into spaces where actually we don't necessarily have a lot of training and uh, it becomes a bit more challenging. And that's where being able to link the, skill, the, the kind of technical or hard skills with soft skills becomes the key. So, you know, particularly if you're in line two roles, something I found quite difficult at the start was not to tell people what to do, but to sell it to them, because you are an influencer only. You know, in a line two role, you can't tell line one management what to do. You can try and make the argument. You can try and convince them. You've got to do it through logic. Um, you know, if you can't do it through logic, you've got to try and find another way, but you can't tell them. Um, and these are difficult things to do, not just for actuaries. I mean, for most people, these are quite difficult uh, discussions to have, they are difficult engagements to have, sometimes the issues that you debate are issues that don't get resolution quickly, so you just got to keep on coming back at them. And my suggestion is, uh, my experience is that this is not an event, it's actually a journey. And this is a journey where, uh, you know, you need to try and keep moving in the right direction, and the way that you do that is you have to get help from others. So you need to go on courses that can teach you, you've got to use coaching if that's going to help you. Um, you know, use assessments, 360s, get people to tell you just how lousy you were to them so you can decide if you can do it differently or better the next time. Uh, and these things are, are very active processes. They don't get done by, uh, by book learning. Just to speak briefly, uh, you know, having moved from South Africa to work globally, it was actually an enormous learning curve. I thought, well, here we are in South Africa, we've got a great multicultural environment, lots of people from different backgrounds, you know, if you can get on with people in South Africa, you can probably get on with them anywhere else. Um, you know, South Africans are great people, you can go overseas and it's going to be lacquer. But actually, you know, that's not necessarily the case. You go overseas and you find that suddenly there are enormous and pronounced differences between how people operate. And they don't seem quite logical. You don't quite understand where this all comes from because surely I said A and you should understand A. But you say A and somebody else understands B and they think it's actually quite offensive or they disagree or whatever. And it becomes quite tricky because, you know, we think we use words in a certain way. But actually others just interpret them in a completely different way. Um, and so I found this, this is very, very interesting actually. You know, I either currently work in or have worked with or worked in uh, the following markets. And... What I find interesting is the UK and Ireland, you'd think, well, you know, Ireland's this little uh, part of a little island in the, in the British Isles and used to be part of England until it became the Republic, etc. How different can it be? Well, it's actually quite, quite different. People speak, they use words differently. You've got to be quite careful, you know, you're trying to get a certain result and you might get completely the opposite result. 
using a word that you don't think is particularly tricky. Canada and the USA, wow, I tell you, don't, don't tell a Canadian you think they're American. You know, that just really upsets them. And the way that they use their words are, are quite different as well. Sweden, Denmark, and Norway, there's no such thing as a Scandinavian. If you tell a Dane that he, you, know, you think he's a Swede, I mean, that's pretty insulting. And of course, the Norwegians, Norway used to be a Swedish colony, and uh, they got their, their independence in the last century. And they're now very proud because, you know, per capita, they're so wealthy. And uh, they look down upon the Swedes. But of course, there's a bit of rivalry back from the Swedes towards the Norwegians who feel that they should never have given it away at all. France and Germany, the two powerhouses of continental Europe, are fundamentally different in how they think about things. Looking at uh, working when I was in South Africa, working with Australian colleagues again, completely different. You'd think Southern Hemisphere, we all like the sun, you know, we like having a barbecue, uh, life must be, must, be, must be good. It's actually very different. Likewise, working with people from India and China, completely new experience. And uh, that was really fascinating. It can make things very, very difficult. Uh, I did this course with INSEAD in 2011, and I wish I'd done it years before, because suddenly I understood so much more about how these personal differences and personal cultures that people have have evolved and, and, and why they're different, you know. Um, we're not that hierarchical in South Africa. You, know, you might think that you work in a company that's hierarchical. Go to an English company, it's even more hierarchical. Uh, go to a German company, well, you don't talk unless the boss says you can talk. It's fascinating, just these, these fundamental differences. And so these kind of soft skills start, uh, as you start realizing what they are, you kind of wish that you were taught some of that at university. Um, I wanted to show you one example, and it's, it's, it's somewhat tongue-in-cheek, and it's from INSEAD, so I hope it doesn't uh, offend anybody. But they showed us this, uh, this thing, you know, they did some research between when the British say something and how the Dutch in, in Holland, and you'd think that you know, England and, and Netherlands, they side by side, they've actually been trading with each other for centuries, they've been partners, they've been rivals, etc., etc. So, you know, when the English say, I hear what you say, they kind of mean that they disagree, but if you're Dutch, they think, oh, he understands my view, you know, accepts my view. When they say, with all due respect, they're telling you that you're wrong. <laughs> Meanwhile, you think, well, actually, they're listening to me. When they say to you, perhaps you'd like to think about that, I'd suggest they're actually giving you a pretty clear order. And if you don't follow it, you must expect to explain yourself. Whereas, you know, and, and yeah, for the Dutch understand column, I would put myself as well. You know, they're saying, well, think about this idea. And if you like it, do it. When they're telling you that something's very interesting, I've always thought they think it's interesting. <laughs> Actually, they're telling you they don't, they don't agree at all. If you get asked to consider some other options, you're really being told that they don't like your idea at all. Whereas you might think, well, they haven't decided yet. My option's still on the table. When somebody says to you, I'm sure it's my fault, you know, I'd say, okay, that's great, they've owned up. Actually, they're saying it's not my fault at all. If you get told that something's an original point of view, you're actually being told that it's completely crazy. You might think that someone likes your idea, but actually they're just telling you it's nuts. Don't go with that. And if you get told that they almost agree, you might think, well, you've just got to go a little way to get them over the line. But actually they're telling you that they don't agree at all. I mean, it's fascinating. So simple words, which you know, we think we all know what they mean, actually can have such different meanings. I mean, pretty much 180 degrees. Now, this is just one example, but can you imagine when you're working with people and you think 
they're pretty much like you or you think it's quite easy to get an idea across and you can have this kind of thing happening, it actually can become quite tricky. So in closing, you know, I think that the actuarial training I had has really helped me to do any of those roles that I've done in the CRO or CFO space. Um, it's been a fantastic training and fantastic key skills. Of course, like with anything, being able to put it into practice is key. And that often is more on the soft side. And certainly, I know a lot of my learnings have been about how I could have done something better because uh, I thought it was going to work out, but actually it wasn't quite understood like I thought it would be. Because putting things into practice means working with people. Uh, I have a friend in the UK who talks about you know, having to deal with carbon life forms. And he, he would like to sit in a room on his own, little black box, and just do stuff connected by computers and send out stuff. But unfortunately, he gets frustrated because he has to deal with carbon life forms every day, i.e., you know, people like me and, and, and all of us in this room. Because to get things done, we've got to work with people, either as your peers, as your team members, as the people that you report to. And, uh, you know, that, that, that can be difficult. I think the soft skills are, are very, very important, and I think it's something that, as actuaries, you know, we need to be mindful of. And I think it's an ongoing process. Uh, particularly, it can be difficult for us because our profession focuses so, so much on the technical side of things and technical skills. So just in closing as a thought, um, some of you know me know that I, I really enjoy aviation. I, I fly airplanes, et cetera, et cetera. And I've often thought there are lots of um, parallels between safely completing a flight and good risk management. Um, but I found this quote, which I thought was really good. And it just closes off by saying, it's your attitude, not your aptitude, that determines your altitude. So thank you very much. Thanks, Andrew. That was excellent. Um, surely if you just spoke actuary to those Dutch and British, they'd know exactly what you mean. <laughs> I probably can't remember all the formulae. Yeah, I think unfortunately regulation per se is, is always a wild card. One of our directors is the CEO of Partnership, which is, uh, was a very highly rated, high growth company in the UK until the Chancellor's speech. And uh, when their share price crashed, and I think they, they're down about two-thirds since, since that particular speech. And we asked them, you know, didn't this feature on your risk log anyway? And he said, no, it was truly, I know it's an overused cliche, but a black swan for them. Where I would say the actuarial training has, has helped me is that um, as the Chancellor made his speech, we started trying to think through the steps logically which I think is an actual given, hopefully, um, logically about what it means. And we actually analyzed for our own business that it's actually a very good outcome. Now that might sound quite contrary, but we're not a business that issues annuities. We've got some vesting annuities for customers who, um, who, who have pensions with us. And we've actually always tried to encourage them to take their pensions, their, their annuities from someone else. Um, and when their policy matures, they're obliged to take their money and buy an annuity. Now, we don't have special annuities. We don't have enhanced annuities. We've got a very standard product. We uh, try and give our small annuitants more money than the big annuitants, you know, relatively. So if, you've got a, if you buy a 10,000 pound annuity with us, you'll get slightly better than if you buy a 20,000 pound annuity, for instance. Um, and uh, because we know we can't give the best rate in the market, we'd actually rather that customers bought annuities from someone else 
Otherwise, we might be accused by the regulator down the line of not giving them best advice or best execution. So the fact that they don't have to have compulsory unitization now is a positive because the customer doesn't necessarily have to mature their policy. Okay, that might not be in the customer's best interest at that arbitrary point in time. Uh, you know, we'll now be able to let them stay in their, in their, in their pensions contract, which is a tax-sheltered contract, and we're looking at letting them do a drawdown out of that. So, you know, I'd say maybe the actuarial piece was we're able to think through it piece by piece. The initial reaction would have been, this is really bad. But actually, once you take it step by step, you realize it's not disastrous. Um, I was interested that uh, you made very little mention of the A word, accounting. Um, in my day, uh, I felt that the actuarial training was very poor on accountancy. And in fact, when I did the CFA, I discovered I knew nothing about accounting. Uh, how did you deal with that and how important is it in these roles? I think that um, in terms of technical accounting, you, you know, if you're an actuary, you're never going to be somebody who takes IFRS to bed to really analyze at night. Um, but you need to employ somebody who does that. So I think that's important. Um, I do remember the accounts lectures I went to at Varsity, and actually when I started my first day at Capital Alliance, uh, I kind of put myself through quite an um, intensive learning process. I got the auditors in, and we worked through things. And when we did some of the transactions, I still remember probably about 3 a.m. one night in uh, a lawyer's office in Joburg, finally agreeing the, the Fed for acquisition with, uh, with Investec. By that stage, because we'd done so many previous acquisitions, and normally when you buy a company, the books are in a mess, the systems are a mess, et cetera, et cetera. We used to work everything out from first principles. So when we did a migration, we'd uh, regenerate the policies from inception to the current day. And we'd work out the accounting entries doing T accounts. So I'd learned a fair bit by that stage uh, on accounting. And I remember Stephen turning to me at about 3 a.m. one morning, um, just when we were signing the future deal, saying, so what did you do first? Did you study accounting first or actuarial first? And I was fortunate that I was in the position that I could say to him, well, Stephen, actually, you know, I'm an actuary, and I've happened to pick up accounting as I went along. Um, but I do agree, you know, when it comes to the technical stuff, you need to have good people, but you have to understand the basics, because when debit and credits are flying around, you kind of need to know which side of the, of the ledger those are fitting on. <laughs> Question was around the role of actuaries in hedging guarantees around the world. Yeah. Okay, so the UK life industry went through a near-death experience in 2003 um, where they all hold, held lots and lots of equities and uh, they had guarantees that came into the money at the time of a market crash. And they introduced this idea of a realistic balance sheet after that, which was really the economic view of your balance sheet. And people moved away from just regulatory balance sheets saying this is what the regulator wants us to hold, to thinking about what the real underlying risk in the business is. When I spoke earlier about uh, risk capital and value, the risk I was thinking about there is measuring your real economic risk. And so that's something which I think actuaries have been right in the heart of. And uh, when it comes to actually doing uh, guaranteeing, working out how to hedge those guarantees, um, in, in the business that I'm currently involved in, Guardian, that is actually the heart of our business. What we do is we buy complex products that other people don't want anymore. We've got loads of capital, so we can afford to put capital at risk. We go to insurance companies that uh, need to release capital, and uh, either because 
they want to put that money into something else like paying out commission checks to brokers or they want to just exit the industry or that product line. And so what we do is we work on the actual guarantees that are implicit in that block. Um, the key, of, the heart of our company is actually the engagement between the actuarial team and the investment team and they work as one team, which in my experience has been somewhat unusual because often you have investment teams on one side and they look at the assets and actuaries on another side and they calculate the liabilities and God forbid they should ever come together. So, you know, at the heart of what we do, and we probably spend, well, I have teams of people doing this every day, spending their whole day trying to analyze guarantees we've got, trying to hedge them better, trying to optimize them. And, uh, you know, that, that can be quite a lucrative place to add value if you're prepared to put the capital behind those, those guarantees and understand which risks you want to take. So some of you might not hedge. You know, for instance, we do a lot of annuity blocks in the UK and we don't hedge out, or we hedge out a bit of longevity risk. We're happy to go long longevity. Um, there are certain investment risks that we don't want at all, and we will sell those to someone else who wants those. So you've got to know what risks you're being paid to take, what risks you want to put capital behind, and then place those bets. Uh, if things blow up and you've hedged yourself properly, you might find that uh, you find the next round of transactions you do you might need more capital, but no one's going to shoot you for it. It's when things blow up and you thought that you had it hedged, but you didn't, or you didn't understand that you were taking a risk that you turned out to take. You know, that's, that's when people really hold you to account, and quite rightly. We are noticing it is with our regulators. So in the UK, for instance, um, the supervisors don't want to make any decisions right now uh, at the supervisory level. It all gets pushed up. You know, so for instance, in, in, in the Bank of England now, or the PRA, it's been designed that there's a model where supervisors, frontline people, don't make decisions. All the decisions go up to a top committee, and that's how they make the interest rate decision, right? So the Bank of England's designed to send data up once a month to a group of people who pronounce on interest rates, and they're using a similar approach on the regulatory side. I'm not sure that it's healthy, and equally, I think if you've seen that in an organization, I think that's not healthy either, because I think an effective risk culture is one where people in the management line, so line one that need to take decisions, are able to take decisions. The risk guys challenge them. Risk challenges by having good access to data um, and to do analysis, uh, but doesn't stop the, the front line from making decisions. And I think if one is seeing that, I would argue that that's actually an indication that the risk framework isn't working properly because the risk framework is supposed to empower management. It's not supposed to disempower people. I'm not sure if I quite understood, if I understood your question correctly, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. When I worked in the bank, it was fascinating. We did a lot of market risk work there, and actually, the market risk guys would would every day just be. I'm just trying to get to a slide here. The market risk guys every day would be um, would be analysing positions and coming to talk to traders, and traders would be changing their positions if they needed to. Okay, so when when you when you've got risk taking all the decisions, you're ending up in this piece of the of the the graph. Things, you know, when risk gets obsessed about anything going wrong, you get into a low return environment. The brakes are on, you're not going anywhere. And the only way you get back into a decent return environment is to take some risk and to manage it. And, and I think that um, if, you've got the good, if you've got good data and good people, you need to trust them. So if you don't feel that you can trust the people, you need to change them. If you don't think you've got the data, you need to get better data. Because at the end of the day, if the risk office is making all the calls, 
Um, that, to my mind, is a failure of, of risk management. Very good question. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks, Andrew. Nice right off new presentation. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much.